following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Not here for the first time, you're very welcome as well. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, the humbling of a king. Now, I, uh, my first joke, um, I tried with a youth last week and they... I just got a sea of blank faces, but I'm going to try it on you and see if uh, they understand it. Uh, so there was a, a psychiatric hospital, uh, and there were two men who were on separate beds, uh, both of them with mental health problems, and uh, one of them said to the other one, I'm Napoleon, I'm Napoleon Bonaparte. And the other one said, you're not Napoleon. And the other man said, how do you know I'm not Napoleon? And he said, because I'm God. Uh, once I told that to my the, the point is that they're both deluded about their identity um, when I told that to my to yesterday my daughter said to me dad please don't tell any jokes any longer because they just don't work anyway this morning we're going to think about the uh, the, the, uh, the humbling of a king Nebuchadnezzar and uh, we're in the book of Daniel the humbling of a king And uh, what we find this week is uh, God brings down a proud and a powerful man, Nebuchadnezzar. But the thing is that I want us to get to this morning is that it's through his breakdown that God rescues him. So next week in chapter 5, we're going to find God bringing down a nation, or an empire, the nation of uh, the empire of Babylon. Um, And in that case, there is no rescue, there is only judgment. But here we find redemption right through in this story. So, uh, I've got various headings. Um, you can have the next slide, please. I've got an introduction, and then I'm going to tell this story in three acts and read various parts of it to you. Act one, act two, act three. And then some lessons at the end, some things to take away. So, uh, for the introduction, let's just think uh, about some context to the book of Daniel, some historical introduction. So you will know if you know anything about the Bible uh, that uh, Adam and Eve uh, were created by God in his image. They sinned and God promised to bring them a a serpent crusher who would be the seed of a woman. And um, God raised up a nation, the descendants of Abraham, who would be the nation through whom he would bring his Messiah, his Saviour, who we know to be Jesus Christ, into the world. So the Old Testament has various... uh, uh, sections to it. You have the patriarchs, um, beginning with Abraham, and then you have uh, the time in Egypt, you have the Exodus, you have the conquest of the land, the promised land, and the settlement of the land by the nation of Israel under Joshua. And after Joshua, Israel is ruled by a series of judges. But during those days, Israel uh, calls out that they want a king to be like the other nations, and God gives them a king. They get many kings. First of all, they get Saul, then they get David, and they get Solomon. But after Solomon, who built the great temple, the first temple, uh, the nation of Israel splits into two. It's 930 years before Christ. So you have ten tribes in the north, and you have two tribes in the south. The northern kingdom is still called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. So the northern kingdom of Israel, they never have a good king. And the nation betrays all of its 
heritage that it received as the descendants of Abraham and the law. They betrayed everything. And they devoted themselves to idolatry and they worshipped false gods. And by 722 BC, Yahweh had had enough of the northern kingdom and he allowed the Assyrians to come and overrun their nation. And the ten tribes in the north were scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire and they disappeared into history. The southern kingdom of Judah survived for another 136 more years, roughly. But due to its idolatry and corruption, it is eventually overrun uh, by the new superpower that's overtaken the Assyrians, and this is the, that is the Babylonians. And in time, the Babylonians uh, smash the city of Jerusalem, and they smash the temple to the ground. And in various phases, many of the leaders of the nation of Judah are taken into exile in Babylon for 70 years. Of course, afterwards, um, a few of the Jews, I think it was only 3% of the Jews, actually return uh, to the land of Israel, and they rebuild the temple to make uh, to continue the line of the nation because the Messiah has not yet come. But the book of Daniel is concerned with God's people living in exile in Babylon. So the, uh, God's people are, uh, the Jewish people are estranged. They're called Jews in those days by this time because they are mainly the descendants of Judah, the tribe of Judah. Uh, they're estranged from their beloved city and their beloved temple and they're a small remainder uh, from a once proud nation living as they are in Babylon. So Babylon is the world's superpower at this particular time. But for the Jews living in exile in Babylon, it was a very foreign place for them. The customs were different, the language was different, the manners were different, the protocol was different, and the people worshipped strange gods, the gods of the Babylonians. And the broken Jewish remnant uh, sat down by Babylon's rivers and they wept and remembered Zion, Jerusalem. But there in Babylon, they were not abandoned, uh, far from it, uh, because they found that, that God is not the God of one place on the earth only, like some kind of pagan God, just the God of the Jewish people in Canaan. Uh, although the, the Jews were living in, a, in an alien world and a foreign world, God was at work revealing that he was still the God of gods and the Lord of lords in their midst, so their world had collapsed, the world of the Jewish people, but God remained and he was sovereign. And he was still doing mighty deeds among them. And that's the message of Daniel. And forever afterwards, this book has helped believers learn to live faithfully as a remnant in a hostile world. Now, the king of Babylon uh, is the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar. He's probably the most powerful man in all the world. Uh, and in chapter 1, we found him selecting a few Jewish men uh, who were uh, from the exile. Uh, and his, um, his idea, his plan was to enable them to serve in his court, the court of the king. And they included Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. But the, the, the lesson is that in spite of their re-education, which he gives them, and the pressures to eat food that was previously uh, offered to idols and may have been in contradiction to their Jewish food laws, uh, they stand firm and they, they remain faithful to God. So Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego uh, are given power and they're given wealth and they're given status. But here's the thing, and this is such an important lesson. Uh, they're not corrupted by it. Uh, and the reason that they, uh, um, that, they, that they aren't corrupted by it 
as Nathan's already suggested in the latest story, is because they don't lose their identity as God's people. They belong to Yahweh, um, and they don't, because they don't lose that sense of their identity, they're not corrupted uh, by all the power and wealth and status that they have. And the consequence is that, um, certainly in the case of Daniel, that because they stood firm and they were faithful to Yahweh in the midst of such difficulties, that God stirred up in him this amazing gift, which is the ability to interpret dreams. And it, it's always that way with, with giftings. It's, it's in the struggle and in situations of pressure that our gifts are nurtured. Our gifts don't, aren't nurtured when life is a pleasure cruise. So that's chapter 1 of Daniel. Then in chapters 2 and 3 we find that God's people are tested still further. Um, and the issue is, will they bow down to the gods, to the idols, the gods of the Babylonians, to save their own skins, or will they publicly remain faithful to the living God and worship him alone? And uh, they are tested, but they remain faithful, even though they face um, lion's dens and fiery furnaces, God delivers them. And the result is that, that Yahweh's power, God's power to Deliver is put on display for the, for the nation, for the empire of Babylonia, including the king, King, king Nebuchadnezzar. So through it all, God's people, his servants, they secure the attention of King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and by the end of chapter 3, the king acknowledges that the God of these Jewish men demands respect and he decrees that nobody in his empire will be allowed to trash talk their God. It's not uh, a term I've used, learnt from my American friends, trash talk. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, decrees that nobody can trash talk uh, uh, the God of the Jewish people, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Uh, and the consequence will be that your limbs will be torn from you uh, if you if you do that uh, and your houses will be, will be laid to ruin because Nebuchadnezzar says there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promotes... Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And then we come to chapter 4, which is our chapter for this morning. So in this chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar takes centre stage. um, And after this chapter, he kind of fades off the pages of Scripture. But this is really about him and God's dealings with him. So what's interesting is that here we have a Gentile king who is outside of the covenantal promises of Israel. But still God is at work in his life. So, as we've seen, uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, has already been awakened in some sense to who God is, to God's reality, because of what's happened, uh, because of the Jewish people in his midst. But he's still a very proud man. And you find him in chapter 4 taken up with his uh, power, his achievements, uh, and he's not bowed the knee to the true king, Yahweh. I think he still thinks he's the most important king around. So by the time we get to chapter 4, 30 years have passed since the events of chapter 1. That's really important. And all through these years, I think what you see is God pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. And in this chapter we see Nebuchadnezzar transitioning from his previous polite acknowledgement of God to submitting to him as God. And that's the lesson of chapter 4. What you see is a conquering king being conquered. But it takes a mental breakdown of Nebuchadnezzar for that to happen. And what I want us to see as we go through this is that his story 
is our story in many ways. You see, in our lives, when we resist the workings of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then God steps up his game. And that's what this chapter is about. God is stepping up his game. He's upping the ante as he patiently brings Nebuchadnezzar to himself through drastic means. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had seen miracles. He'd seen Daniel saved from the lion's den. He'd seen Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego saved from the fiery furnace. But he didn't believe, not really. He acknowledged God, but he didn't believe in him. And I think it's true to say that miracles very rarely bring people to God. Didn't Jesus himself say, even if one rises from the dead, these people will not believe. You know, when I was uh, pastoring in England uh, 20 years ago, um, I, um, I got to know a couple who were connected with, with our church. They kind of connected with us for a short time. Uh, and their son was a heroin addict. And he'd met some Christians uh, and they prayed for him and he'd become a Christian and he came off heroin instantly. He was with no cold turkey, he was cured and he became an, an amazing disciple of Jesus. And his parents witnessed this miracle in his life um, and they were amazed and they were thankful uh, and they brought their many, many questions to me and we talked and we talked about their questions that they had and they were interested for a while and then they drifted back to their old habits and routines. It was all very sad You see, witnessing that miracle in their son did not bring them to Christ. Very similar kind of situation with Nebuchadnezzar. He'd seen the miracles, but he didn't really believe that that God, he didn't believe God in a way which was believing uh, that God should be his saviour and king and lord. Now, uh, in chapter 4, the story really progresses in three acts um, one, two, and three. In the first act, Nebuchadnezzar is the narrator. It's told in the first person. Um, and in the second act, uh, somebody else relates what's happening to him. I guess his world had so collapsed, he wasn't in a position to narrate it. And then in the third act, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is back as the narrator. So let's begin with uh, act one, which is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is uh, verses one to 18, but I'm going to start in verse four. Um, so in these verses, just to give you a little bit of context, Nebuchadnezzar um, announces that he's had a second dream. Uh, the first dream was the one that we found in chapter 2. In chapter 2, you remember, he saw that great statue of a beast in different sections, which predicts three great empires to come. And then the collapse of this statue when Christ comes. Um, but his, this is his second dream here, verse 4. So I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, And prospering in my palace, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. 
The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. So let's pause there. So, to kind of uh, recap, um, essentially, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has dreamt of this magnificent tree whose influence spreads over the whole of the earth. You've got to think of this massive tree and its branches spread across the whole of the earth. Uh, and as you will know, uh, dreams in this kind of culture were a big deal. So the king wants, this, wants the interpretation of the dream and he calls all the wise men of Babylon uh, but when they fail to explain it to him, there is somebody left who is considered to be part of the group of wise men, who is Daniel. Um, and uh, he's called to explain this dream, to interpret this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 13, this is what, Daniel sa- uh, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel. He said to him, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its, of, of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze uh, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, remember that first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had uh, in chapter 2. He saw that great statue of a giant, and it was supernaturally felled. It was supernaturally felled by a, a flying rock, who we recognize to be Christ the rock of ages. Uh, but in this dream, <clears throat> uh, this, he sees this huge, magnificent tree and it's cut down by di- divine command and all that's left is its stump and roots. Now, in Babylonian literature, I believe that a tree represented a king. And that means that very likely Nebuchadnezzar uh, guessed that this dream was the kind of news that he didn't want to hear. Uh, especially because he was the only king around. He'd subdued all the other kings in the, uh, in the region. And he, of course, to be in this kind of position, he wouldn't be stupid. Uh, he must have guessed this was about him. So if that's true, that he knew that he was the king, uh, he wouldn't have needed an interpreter to know that uh, he was threatened with being chopped down, um, that he would lose his throne, and uh, the prediction is here that he would lose his mind. In fact, even worse than that, that he would become somebody whose mind became that of a beast or an animal. Uh, It must have been rather a shock 
for the most powerful man in all the world. So Daniel is asked to explain it all. And uh, verse 19 tells us that, that Daniel is perplexed and terrified. Um, of course, it's never nice to be the bearer of bad news for anybody. Um, but maybe the, this news would have been unsettling for Daniel personally and maybe for the Jewish community in Babylon. Because if Nebuchadnezzar collapses, uh, then his, his demise might affect them all. You know, when I um, lived in Uganda, uh, I couldn't find many people who liked the president, Museveni. Uh, he was a pretty corrupt man. He still is a pretty corrupt man. Um, I couldn't find many people who liked him, but they still turned out to vote for him. And it kind of puzzled me for a long time. And then one of my students said to me one day, uh, the reason that we, we vote for him is because he's a strong man and he keeps this nation together. If he wasn't here, we'd descend into chaos in about five minutes. And you see, maybe Daniel was perplexed and uh, terrified because he had to tell this bad news to the king. But it might have been because he knew the implications for the Jewish people could be worse than having Nebuchadnezzar in place uh, for them as a small remnant in this empire. But look at verse 24. Daniel says this. Uh, this is the interpretation. O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know from the time that you know that heaven rules so seemingly uh, the king's fate is not sealed uh, it's not inevitable um, and if you look in verse 27 which um, Daniel actually calls Nebuchadnezzar which is remarkable considering he's this great king to repentance in verse 27 he says therefore O king let my counsel be accepted to you Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So seemingly it wasn't inevitable that he was going to go into this time of mental breakdown. So that's the first act in our story. I'm sorry to read so much of it, but you have to get the the sense of it. It's important to read the the scripture to get a feel of how it how it flows. That's our first act. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And what it means is in Act 1 and Daniel's confirmation of what it means. And then we have Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2. Not Acts chapter 2, we have Act 2. Um, not in the New Testament yet. Uh, we have the king's breakdown, which is verses 28 to 32. Act uh, 2 should be on the next slide. Um, Daniel 4, 28 to 32. So this, as I said to you before, this is written in the third person by somebody else. Um, and um, I'm going to read more. 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is, 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 is this not great Babylon, 
which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. So Nebuchadnezzar had been warned. It's 12 months since he had his dream and the interpretation. And he'd been given time to break off from his sins by practicing righteousness and and from his iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. So I'm speculating now that maybe he was given time to address the question of slave labor in his empire, to uh, remove the torture chambers uh, and to begin to treat the nations that he'd conquered with dignity. But nothing seemed to happen. Uh, And it was in spite of all of Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, all these miracles that he'd seen, as we've thought about before, and in spite of his instructive encounters that he'd had with God's people, um, and this respect he had for Yahweh, uh, in spite of all those things, it was business as usual for Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace, congratulating himself. You have to imagine the most beautiful city in the world, very likely, at this time, that he'd built. Once he'd conquered the nations, he devoted his time and energy to building the most magnificent city in all the world. Of course, you can still see the remnants of Babylon today. uh, And uh, we think he built these uh, amazing hanging gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon, which were considered to be one of the um, ancient um, wonders of the world. And he's surveying it all. And he's congratulating himself. He's a self-made man. He thinks anyway... And seemingly he's self-obsessed, he's self-centered, and he's supremely, he is proud. Uh, you, I try to emphasize the personal pronouns. Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? He doesn't strike you as a man with much humility. And uh, the text says that the words were still in his mouth when a voice came from heaven declaring that the kingdom of Babylon had been taken away from him and all the things that were predicted about him come true. So we look in verse 33. It says, Immediately the word uh, was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So what's happening to... uh, Nebuchadnezzar, well, I think, as uh, I've already mentioned, that the king is having a mental breakdown. His world is collapsing. He has some kind of delusion or psychotic disorder uh, where he believes that he is some kind of an animal and he acts accordingly. Uh, There is a medical name for this condition. It's called um, boanthropy, um, a rare psychological disorder in which a person believes himself or herself to be a cow or an oxen. Um, Dr. R.H. Harrison documented the first case in the British Mental Institution in 1946, interestingly. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar is in this terrible state of mind and he finds himself uh, living outside. He's at the mercy of the dew and the rain. He's not able to clean, to groom himself. His fingernails aren't cut. 
Now, when you fall in life, the higher you are up the ladder, the further you've got to fall. If you're living as a homeless person on the street and you're on the first rung of the ladder, you don't really fall very far. But imagine if you're king of the world's powerful empire, you have a long way to fall. And he ends up as a beast in the field. So here's a man who believed that he was superhuman. And God brings him into a situation where he is subhuman. This is an artist's impression of the scene. You see, what I think we have to see with this event is God's judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar, on his pride. But what's interesting is, maybe we shouldn't use the word judgment, we should use the word discipline, because this is not punishment. It might be punishment in some way, some sense, but really we should see it as correction for his rehabilitation. Because you notice that the text tells us that there is, this tree is cut down, this magnificent tree, but there is still a stump and a root that is left. Because God has not destroyed Nebuchadnezzar. He's not killed him. Uh, God will restore him, but he will grow back in a different way. And then we come to Act chapter 3, which is Nebuchadnezzar restored. <coughs> Excuse me. Verses uh, 34 to 37. Act 3. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. It's very interesting that when you have your eyes focused on God himself, your reason is restored to you. The basis for all rationality is a right view of God. Uh, I'll talk about this maybe next week when we think about the the decline and destruction of Babylon. But today we are losing our reason collectively in the world. Because our minds have been taken off God. But it was when he had his eyes focused on heaven that his reason returned to me. And he blessed the Most High and he praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say, what have you done? Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for his, all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble So the message of Act 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar's sanity is returned to him, it's restored to him, his mind and reason. And he lifts his eyes to heaven um, and he gives this amazing testimony of of who God is and what God is able to do. He praises God and honours him. So what's happened is that Through what's happened to Nebuchadnezzar, he's gone through this revolution in how he thinks about God. He acknowledges that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It's one that endures through all generations. There's a lot, of course, about the kingdom of God in the book of Daniel. Um, And it's impossible not to think that he's comparing what God's kingdom is like to his own kingdom, which he recognises is not forever. Uh, And in fact, by the very next chapter, the kingdom of Babylon disappears into history. 
and is replaced by the Medes and the Persians. But Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledging who is the king, and it's not himself. But what I think as well is that Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledging his accountability. You see, before this, he, he thought that God was happy to play second fiddle to his ego. And he wasn't. God never is happy to play second figure to our fiddle to our ego. Uh, and no longer does Nebuchadnezzar think that. You see, his, his pride seems to have gone. And he sees that all of God's works are just and are right and his ways are just. Um, and that God walks with those who come to humility. So the man who has conquered empires... And nations is conquered by God. And if you said to me, do you think King, ne- King Nebuchadnezzar became a believer? I would say probably yes. He believed in a saving God. Will he be in heaven? I think so. But I want to give you two lessons from this chapter. There were so many lessons. I have to uh, limit myself to two. The first one is this, that uh, God, is, God is sovereign over the nations uh, and the rulers of the world. And that's a, a really important lesson for us to get hold of. God is sovereign over the nations and the rulers of the world. So in verse 17, we have this uh, really important text in verse 17. Uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, this was the, um, what Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to realize was that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Now, uh, I've never lived in a, in a nation where, which lacks a significant amount of freedom. I've always lived in fairly free nations like Thailand. I've always known uh, freedom of religion and of conscience and of, and of expression. But here's the thing. If the world continues on its current conject- trajectory, the way it's going at the moment, then probably most of us are going to lose our freedom to live as Christian believers and express our faith and evangelize others. That is the, the movement, the current at the moment, that nobody is allowed to be offended. And if you offend anybody with what you say, then you'll be guilty of a hate crime. Um, and if we don't face that kind of situation where we lose our freedom, very likely our children will. That's the way that the world, I think, is going at the moment. Um, and of course, many people in the world don't have that kind of freedom. There's a tremendous amount of persecution and oppression of God's people, of Christians today. But this account provides us with a reminder that no one is beyond the place where God uh, can reach them, can't reach them. Is that, I'm not sure which one it is. Uh, but nobody's in a place where God can't reach them. Uh, God can finger anyone anywhere and bring them to justice. Because God is a sovereign God. And if you're ruled by a tyrant who oppresses you, that must be enormously comforting. You see, Nebuchadnezzar learns that even as the most powerful man in all the world, he he had to realise that he couldn't trample on the sensitivities of God's people and get away with it. There's nobody beyond the reach of God. You know, history is full of people who uh, examples of, of, uh, of people, men especially, who've been humbled. Um, I was thinking as I was preparing this about um, Napoleon Bonaparte, get come back to Napoleon, uh, in 90, sorry, 1812, he took his grand army to uh, invade Russia with 600,000 men. 
uh, between 15, sorry, uh, between 10 and 15,000 made it home. Talk about being humbled with his failed campaign in Russia. Well, I came across the words of Benito Mussolini, the um, Italian fascist, during World War II. He said this, you've got to have a big ego to say this. He said, I recognise no sovereignty outside of my own will. I recognise no sovereignty outside of my own will. What a, a man with a huge ego. Well, uh, he of course vowed to rebuild the Roman Empire. But he ended up being hung upside down by his own people and shot. That was the end of his plans to, to rebuild the Roman Empire. <coughs> uh, of course, Hitler, Adolf Hitler... Um, vowed to build a, a Reich, a realm, a rule that would last a thousand years. And he managed 12 uh, before he took his life and he reduced Germany to rubble in the process. So that's the first lesson, that God is sovereign over nations and rulers. Uh, and there's great comfort in that, uh, especially if you're suffering uh, or you're being ruled by a tyrant or you are concerned about the politics of your nation. Uh, that God's will, in the end, triumphs over all other wills, and only one kingdom will stand in the end. All other kingdoms will come to an end. And we'll give a lot of thought to that next week. But the, the second lesson is this, that Nebuchadnezzar's story is our story. You know, when I was at school, I, I had to learn to play rugby, that crazy English game that you wear without any protection. It's a very rough game. And I had to learn how to tackle a player from behind and, and knock them down by crashing into the back of their legs and bending their legs so they would crash to the ground uh, and bring them down. It's a skill that you can perfect, how you bring another player down. <coughs> and um, in our text, it's as if God tackles Nebuchadnezzar and he brings him down. And I think God is an expert at rugby tackles. You see, I think if I went round this room, I suspect that many of us would have had an experience where God rugby tackled us and he knocked all of the stuffing out of us. Or to change the metaphor, it was like going in the washing machine for uh, 1,200 revs per minute for a year. Or maybe we felt that we put all the pieces on the chessboard as we wanted them to be and then somehow God came along and flicked the board over. But you see... Often when we look back at those times, we realise that God was doing something in our lives where he was bringing us under his authority and he smashes our pride and self-centeredness. You see, God knows this, that left to our own devices, we tend to wreck our lives. Uh, and at some point, God intercepts us and he brings us down. And in the midst of the devastation, we cry out to him and we yield our lives to him. Or that's how it's supposed to be. You see, often it's when we're on our backs that we look up. Uh, because we're forced to. It might be a sickness, it might be a career failure, it might be a relationship failure, it could be financial stress, it could be anything. You see... Because we are uh, descendants of Adam and Eve and we have this sinful nature that we're born with, then part of the nature of sin is delusion. So instead of 
childlike dependence upon God. We confidently think that we can depend upon ourselves, that we make good choices, that we know how the world works, that we can make things, we can engineer things so they come out well in the end. Uh, We think that we are our own centres, that we are strong uh, and able to manage things on our own. We imagine that we have no accountability beyond our own decisions, beyond ourselves. We tend to be self-exalting as opposed to God-exalting. We think that we are self-sufficient rather than God-sufficient. My daughter Lydia, I think the first thing she ever said was, I do it myself. I think they were her first words. I do it myself. She said it to me all the time. I said, can I help you? I do it myself. And because of all those things, this self-centeredness, this delusion about ourselves, I don't know if you've ever been in a car accident uh, and, um, and you know, you're badly shaken and you're shaking or something similar and all of a sudden you realise just how fragile you are. You could be gone in a moment. The fragility of life, the brevity of life. When I took funerals in England, I would always start them by reminding us of the brevity and fragility of life and that one day we would be in the coffin ourselves. I always began the funerals that way, to bring people up to reality. And you see, God has to take our, an axe to our delusions and bring them crashing down. Because he, what, he has to root us in reality. And if we're not rooted in God, we will always be blown around by all the circumstances of life. So the question that's posed by this chapter is this. Who rules your life? Who is the centre of your life? You see, there's no co-regency with God. He will not rule your life with you on two separate thrones. And I would say this, I was uh, thinking about this yesterday. I don't think in all the 35 years I've been a Christian believer, I've never, I don't think I've met a man or a woman of substance who's not been broken in life. Now, you might be thinking this morning as you're sitting there, well, I'm not a king like Nebuchadnezzar. I don't rule an empire, and I'm sure you don't. If you do, please share some of its wealth with all of us. You might be thinking, this doesn't apply to me. Well, your your kingdom will certainly be smaller than Nebuchadnezzar's, but that doesn't mean it can't be a rival to God's. And if your life is not submitted to his plan and his kingdom then very likely at some point in your life it will come crashing down because God will engineer it to happen that way and God will be doing you a favour. Because in the end, there's only one kingdom that will stand and it's not yours. It's the kingdom of Christ. But amazingly, he calls us to participate with him in his kingdom, to play a part in that kingdom. That's the greatness of being a Christian. It's not your kingdom, it's his kingdom, but we partake and work in and for that kingdom that is an eternal kingdom. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Come and join me, Jesus says, and participate in my kingdom, that eternal kingdom. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's story is our story. You know, I know a man in England and he has many, many struggles uh, in many areas of his life. And I think, having known him for many years, that at root his fundamental problem is that he's never let God be God in his life. You know, when you talk to him, you get the classic repetition. If only I had a different wife, this is what he says to me. If only I had a different wife, 
everything will be okay. If only I had a different personality, everything would be okay. If only I had a better job, everything would be okay. A better boss, a different boss. If I had more money, if I lived in a nicer place, then my life would be okay. Everything would be all right. And one day, uh, he kind of invited me to comment uh, on his world and his problems. And um, he said to me, it's all very well for you. Your, Your life has turned out well. And you're at peace with yourself. And I said to him very gently, I said, you know, in the end, there's only one difference between you and me. And it's this, that there came a time in my life when God smashed my little kingdom, my little sweet kingdom to pieces. And it was the most painful time I've ever been through in my life. But in the midst of the darkness, I knelt before Christ and I said, you can have my life. I will serve you in your kingdom all my days. And in that time, I found the greatest contentment I've ever found in life. In fact, it's never left me. And I said to him, you see, for me, that time was rescuing as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. And I came to accept that my circumstances in life were were what God had given to me and I should be contented with them. And I said to him, the problem with you is that you're still fighting. There are things in your life, there are many issues that you've never yielded your life to the king. You've never said, not my will, but yours be done. You know, we have a cat well, my daughter has a cat. Um, and um, occasionally we have to take him to the vet. Uh, and we, ha- we have to help her hold him down uh, while she treats him. Uh, and having a brain the size of a pea, he doesn't really realise that. Uh, we're trying to help him. And he fights blue murder. He struggles and he bites and when he realises he's got no chance of actually biting you because we hold him so tightly while the, while the vet is treating him, he begins to snarl and growl like a dog. It's incredible. This little cat almost turns into a dog growling at us and snarling. And you know, some people are like that. What I mean is this. When God seeks to treat them and subdue their will, they fight like that little cat. You see, that man that I'm talking to you about, he'd never embraced his lot in life and said, here I will find contentment. Here I will find you to be my treasure. Here you will be my delight. My circumstances, yes, they may be difficult, but I will embrace them and believe that they minister to me all that you want to do in my life. And they will make me into the man that I want to be. You see, The lesson of this chapter, chapter 4 of uh, Daniel, is that it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. And it, it is often through the chopping down of our lives, our plans, our egos, in order that he brings us into line with himself. Because in the end, there is never any happiness outside of the will of God for our lives. There is no, no purpose. There is no meaning. There is no future outside of God's plan for our lives. So to finish, that's the lesson of chapter 4. Uh, it's this, that sometimes God rugby tackles us and he brings us down. But when we recover from that rugby tackle, we realise that we have found the path to life. 
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.